0: What I want to do as we are journeying through the Psalms is, I want to ask a question, a question that the psalmist is going to ask in Psalm 73. And it's going to sound like a very odd question, incredibly odd question. It may even sound like an inappropriate question. Right? I know you're intrigued now. Like you just set down your phone. What is he going to say? I want you to to contemplate this and I don't want you to answer it too quickly. I really want you to just let this sit for a moment because this is a serious question we all should be asking ourselves. Whether you're curious about Jesus, you're curious about church, and you just came here because you're like, you know what, I, I, I just need to know. I need to know, is there something after this life? Is there a way to orient my life right now? I need a compass. I need a guide. I need to figure things out in my life. So I gave church a chance. I'm willing to listen to things about Jesus. I'm willing to listen to these things. This is a question for you. But if you're a committed follower of Jesus Christ, you've been following him for years, maybe months, years, or decades even, this is a question for you as well, and it's going to sound like a very odd question to be asking in church. It's a simple question. Is following Jesus worth it? Is following Jesus worth it? Again, maybe maybe again you're just exploring the idea of God. You're exploring the idea of Jesus. You you maybe grew up with this understanding of Jesus, but you've kind of uh, veered away and now now maybe you're you're coming back to it and you're thinking to yourself, is it really worth it because I think there's a cost to this. Like if I start aligning myself with Jesus, I'm going to have to stop doing some things. I'm going to have to start doing some things. And whatever I lose, whatever I miss out on, is it worth it? Do I gain something better compared to the things that I've lost? It's a very appropriate question. In fact, Jesus tells us to ask this question. Look at this passage in Luke chapter 14. Look at how Jesus is talking to those who haven't yet decided to follow him. And look at what he says in Luke 14. He says, and if you do not carry your own cross... And follow me, you cannot be my disciple. But don't begin until you count the cost. For who would begin a construction of a building without first calculating the cost to see if there is enough money to finish it? Jesus says, count the cost. What I love about Jesus, he's not some slick salesman who's trying to get you to sign on the dotted line before the emotional pressure of the moment leaves you. See how Jesus Jesus is not manipulating us, and Jesus is not negotiating with us. He's telling us there is a cost, right? And look at the word he uses. He says it's a cross-like cost. It's a burden, right? To us in 21st century America, we think cross, and we think a piece of jewelry we hang around our neck. But in 1st century Palestine, that was not true. The cross was an instrument of death, right it was a burden that people would bear and they would carry their crossbeam up a hill and they would be crucified nailed up on this thing publicly humiliated shamefully put on their crosses naked beaten bloodied ashamed dying jesus saying that's the vivid image i want you to have as you think about what it costs to follow me what a terrible salesman Right? If you're if if you're trying to get people to come in, make the costs minimal, right? Like put it down here, entry level. No, Jesus, no, let me let me elevate it. The most horrific scene that you could think of, probably in the first century world, I want you to think of that when you think of starting to follow me. And know that before you ever take that first step. Is following Jesus worth it? It's a very appropriate question for the curious to ask. But it's also a very appropriate question if you're a committed follower of Jesus. And I think sometimes we're maybe ashamed to vocalize that question. Right when our thoughts aren't flattering to God, we have fear in sharing those thoughts. Maybe you've been a follower of Jesus Christ for a long time. And as you're trying to put your life in order and you're trying to do things in a good way, in a godly way, in a righteous way, you're trying to be a virtuous person, you're trying to do all these things, all you get seems to be negative consequence. And you got to the point where you realize, like, is this still profitable? Right, maybe in your mind you're kind of doing this, like, spiritual calculus, right? You're you're looking at the balance sheet of your discipleship and you're thinking to yourself, we're going down, we're trending downward. Like, my return on investment it's not very good, is it still worth it? Is it still worth it to follow you, Jesus? Is it still worth it? Have you been in a season like that? I think all of us, no matter how long you've been following Jesus, you've experienced that moment, or friend, you will experience that moment. Is it worth it? And what I encourage you today is to know that asking that question is appropriate. And when your thoughts aren't flattering to God, he wants those feelings. He wants to guide you in those feelings. And here's what I think we're going to realize as we journey through Psalms 73. We're going to realize this spiritual journey that the author is going through. He is asking that question, is it worth it? And here's what he's going to find. Prosperity is not the indicator of if I'm living a life that's worth it something else a balance sheet is not good enough it brings us to our our big idea if you're going to take away one thing I want you to take this away the big idea of our passage today of our message today is this God's presence is better than prosperity and this is where we often kind of lean on how do we know we're living the good life how do we know our life is aligned correctly how do we know we're experiencing the good how do we know if we have a satisfying life am I prospering Right, We know this because what we admire those with affluence. We admire those with prosperity, with comfort, with ease, who are financially secure. We want to be more like those with more. And so we think of the good life as, in, am I prospering? That's where we think the good lies, but it's not where it lies. Really, the good life is found right here. Is God with me? Am I with Him? Do I know His nearness, His presence? God's presence is better than prosperity. Here is the good that we gain in aligning our lives with Jesus. Is we get God's presence, we're not guaranteed to get this. All right, let me show you this. Psalms seventy-three. Let's just start with verse one. I want to show you first the struggle. The struggle that the psalmist is going through here. So let's read Psalms 73. We're going to start with verse 1. He says this, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. He just kind of states this truth. God is good to the godly. There's there's a good return on our investment in following Jesus Christ. The author is probably thinking of Deuteronomy chapter 28. You read that a long time ago in the beginning of the year. But in, in Deuteronomy chapter 28, God lines out, here's how I'm going to bless you for your obedience. I'm going to be good to you as you are godly. And the psalmist is saying this principle, this truth right here. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. He knows that, but he doesn't feel it. And Look at the next verse. But as for me, I almost lost my footing. My feet were slipping and I was almost gone. What is he saying? I know that's true, but I don't feel it. I don't feel it. It doesn't seem worth it. Life is not going as I thought it would. I don't, I'm not experiencing the good I know that's out there, I know that's there, but right now I don't feel that I don't know that. And why? What has generated those feelings? Look at verse 3. He says, For I was, for I envied the proud when I saw them prosper despite their wickedness. Here's what's happening: is he is he is looking at those who are wicked. He is looking at those who are low in character, and they seem to be high in cash. And on his side, he feels like he is high in character, but low in cash. And as he plays this kind of comparison game, he's looking out and he's saying, wait, they're winning, I'm losing. This doesn't make sense. This, this, this isn't right. My daughter just finished one of her literature books for school and I was talking to her about it. And I said, Allie girl, what did you learn? What was one of the lessons you learned from your literature book. And she said, daddy, uh, a comparison is the thief of joy. I was like, okay, all right, you want to preach? Jeez, all right, profound. You know, and I told her, I was like, man, that's really, that's really, really good. That's what's happening here. He's playing this comparison game, right? And as he compares, he looks out and says, wait, they're winning, I'm losing. What am I doing wrong? I have to be doing something wrong, right? Look at how he describes what he sees. Look at verse four. He says, they, they seem to live such process or sorry painless lives their bodies are so healthy and strong they don't have troubles like other people they're not plagued with problems like everyone else they wear pride like a necklace like a jeweled necklace and clothe themselves with cruelty these fat cats have everything their heart could ever wish for what wonderful language They scoff and they speak only evil. In their pride, they seek to crush others. They boast against the very heavens and their words strut throughout the earth. Wow. These are bullies with bank accounts, right? These are the one percenters who only care about number one themselves. They don't use their wealth to help people. They use their wealth to what? Oppress people. They are cruel They're violent, and they have amassed wealth. I think all of us have found moments where we're envious. And moments where we say, am I really doing this right? Like, am I really making the right choices? Because the return on my investment is not good. And I look over here, and they're making all the wrong choices and yet for some reason they seem to be winning i remember talking with a young woman young couple godly couple just trying to do everything's god's way right wanting to build a family wanting to see the blessing of children But I never seemed to happen. Miscarriage, stillborn, suffering after suffering after suffering after suffering. And in the rawness of that emotion, watching this woman's heart just break because all she wants to be is a mother. And in that kind of vulnerable space, in that moment of weakness, just expressing out, but then you've got these girls who are just doing these things, and they're just running around. They don't even want children, and yet all they, all they do is get pregnant, right? And I'm trying to line up with God. What is God doing? Right? We've all been there in those moments, Maybe it's at your workplace, right? And you know that guy, he's late, he's rude, and he robs people of their work, and he accredits himself with the work, and he gets the promotion. Yet you're there early, you do your work, you honor the work of other people, and you always get passed up. And you think to yourself, you know what, I can play the game too. Right? I can cut the corners too. I can do those things. I can, I can divert myself, right? Here's what happens is the fortune of those who are not living in alignment with God, it moves us from this point of admiring them to envying them, then to doubting the direction of our life. Look at verse 10. The fortunes of the wicked builds a following. They start to gain traction on Twitter. They start to gain likes on Instagram. Their wonderful lifestyle is admired by people, and it builds such an attraction that people start to say, wait a second, I need to rethink my choices. Look at this in verse 10. And so the people, it's a different character. This isn't the wicked. This isn't the author. I think this is the Israelites, the people of God. These are fellow brothers and sisters in the people of God, in the family of God that the author has. And look what he says is happening to his people. It says in verse 10, And so the people are dismayed and they're confused. Listen to this. Drinking in all their words. What does God know, they ask? Does the Most High even know what's happening? Look at these wicked people enjoying life of ease while their riches multiply. They just move into unbelief. Does God know what he's doing? Is there knowledge with the most high? It says they're drinking in their words. What wonderful kind of illustrative language there. It's saying, I'm consuming. I'm finding my sustenance in your direction, in your life lessons. I'm going to follow you because your fortunes are massive. So you have to know the way to the good life. And I'm just going to give up what's over here. And I'm going to follow whatever you say. Now, the author is at this point, this kind of precipice moment. He's on the edge. I don't think he goes as far as his brothers and sisters in Israel. At least those ones described in verse 10 and verse 11 and 12. But he gets really close to slipping. But something stops him. Look what he says, verse 10. I'm sorry, verse 13. Did I keep my heart pure? for nothing. If you recall, this kind of goes back to what was happening in verse one. Verse one, it says, the pure in heart. God is good to the pure in heart. Now he's saying, I've kept my heart pure. But did I keep myself innocent for no reason? I get nothing but trouble all day long. Every morning brings me pain. Do you feel what he's going through? Have you felt those feelings? Do you see how this is not very flattering to God, is it? We're not going to sing lyrics like these. (laughs) But this is scripture. This is the Bible. This is inspired. God wrote it through this author, but he wants us to know this, and he wants us to, in a sense, be okay with feeling these feelings and giving those feelings to him. This is not something we should be bashful about. Not something we should be ashamed that we feel. This is something that we should express because we're going to get in these moments. I know personally, I've, I've been in this moment. After my wife and I, we graduated from college. We got married uh, and then uh, went through our last year of college. And then we went off to grad school. I went off to grad school in Louisville, Kentucky. Moved from Southern California to Louisville, Kentucky. And you think going from California to Oregon is a culture shock? Not even close, right? Going from Southern California to Louisville, Kentucky, which I don't know how they only get like one syllable out of Louisville, but Louisville, Kentucky, they just slam it all together there. It's the barbecue sauce that makes you just slur your speech or something, right? Louisville, Kentucky. Went all the way to Louisville, Kentucky. And I went there because I wanted to be a pastor and I wanted to be very well equipped to do that. So I moved my beautiful, wonderful, awesome bride 2,000 miles away from her family 2,000 miles away from my family and we started this pursuit to be trained to be a pastor and I'm there for about oh it's maybe nine months something like that close to a year and we're there we're excited we've given all of this over to the Lord We're, we're excited and delighted to sacrifice for him to be in service to him and what he wants to do as we work for a church and about the nine month mark or something like that tragedy strikes my family my grandfather, who had been uh, battling dementia for several years, passes away, and it just grieved me. My grandfather uh, on my dad's side really kind of took me in, especially in, in high school, and really was a part of my upbringing and really gave me safety and, and protection in a very just unsettled time of my life. So losing him was, was difficult. A couple months after that, my grandmother on my mom's side passes away. A wonderful, beautiful, awesome woman, and she was so incredibly helpful in me just pursuing school, pursuing academics, and she was the one that really helped me get over my learning disabilities. She was the one, in tears, helping me learn how to read. She was a wonderful, patient woman, and losing her was difficult. A couple months after that, my stepfather got diagnosed with a very aggressive cancer, and I think within less than two months, he died. Us three family members in, in, in less than a year. It was like our family Christmas card got cut in half. And I couldn't grieve with them like I wanted to grieve with them. I'm 2,000 miles away from them. And about a, a, a year or, or so into being in, in Louisville, uh, Lindsay and I got pregnant with our first. And I can't tell you how excited I was to call my family. Because there were times where like I would get calls from California and I thought I'm not answering because I don't want to know somebody else who's sick. Like I dreaded answering the phone. So I was so thrilled and excited to call my family and to tell them you're not going to believe this but, and this is exactly what I said. I use these words, life has returned to our family. And they were thrilled and they were overjoyed and they were excited. We were excited. This is awesome. This is Great. But that joy sadly was short lived. Because we lost that baby. And as they're wheeling my wife away from me in the hospital to perform the procedure that will remove our lifeless child from her, I quit. Like, I was done. I was right here. Did I keep my heart pure for nothing? Did I keep myself innocent for no reason? I came here to serve you. And all you have given me is pain. All you have given me is death. I was done. I quit. I quit. I didn't go to work. I didn't go to school. I didn't read my Bible. I was done. I didn't stop believing in God. I just found no reason to follow him anymore. I was so angry. I was so mad. I was in agony and in despair. And I had a friend, a friend who was there to listen to the pain, to listen to the agony, to listen to the hurt. And if it wasn't for his listening ear, I would have shipwrecked my faith. I would have stopped following completely. Look at how the psalmist has a similar encounter. What pulls him out of this pit of despair? What pulls him away from this moment Of feeling betrayed by God because he's not experiencing good even though he's godly. Like, Look what he says in verse 15. If I had spoken this way to others, I would have been a traitor to our people. So I try to understand why the wicked prosper, but what a difficult task it is. What is he saying? This is a hard problem to solve. This is a difficult task. It's a burdensome task, but he's going to find clarity. And where does he find clarity? Look at verse 16, sorry, 17. Then I went into the sanctuary, your sanctuary, O God, and I finally understood the destiny of the wicked. Where does he get clarity? He gets clarity in community. He gets clarity, in a sense, from church. Now, of course, this is the Old Testament, right? Church doesn't exist, but you know what I mean. The the collection of believers, where does he go? He goes to the sanctuary. He maybe goes to a service. He maybe goes to a song service. He maybe goes and hears a Levite preach God's word and teach God's word. He said, I went with God's people and that's when I got clarity. This is a huge lesson for us to learn. You will only find clarity in your crisis in the community of God. And this is the sad part, is at times we don't. We run from our help, and running from help is not helpful. Right? We find ourselves in these seasons, and we're just ashamed to express doubt. We're ashamed to express suffering. We're ashamed to think that we're expressing these moments of, maybe I'm not doing it right. I feel like God has betrayed me, and we think that's not a flattering thing, so I should run from my community. I should run from my Christian brothers and sisters. And the answer is no, you should run to them. Because it's the only place you're going to find clarity. Don't run from your help. That's not helpful. Maybe right now, maybe you're dealing with a pornography addiction. Right? And it's enslaved you. You can't free yourself from it. And if you're honest, you're a little resentful to God that he's let it get this far. But you're too ashamed to say anything. You know what runs your life. You know, it's ruining your life. You know, when your, life, your wife leaves for an errand and takes the kids, the first thing you think is not, what I can, what can I get to on, on the honey-do list, right? Maybe I'll load the dishwasher, maybe I'll, I'll trim the, the trees. No, you immediately think, I'm going to go in here, I'm going to get to my laptop, and I'm going to get my fix, And now this thing has mastered you and you are enslaved to it and you can't get free from it and you're not running to your brothers and sisters in Christ. You're not running to your help because you're ashamed. You have to hear this is a safe place. In fact, this is the only safe place for your doubts and for your struggles and for your hurt and for your pain. Don't run from your help. It's not helpful. Or maybe what you're feeling is You're feeling attraction to the same sex, and you don't know what to do with those feelings. You you know God's model for marriage. You know God's model for human flourishing is one man, one woman for one lifetime with one heart devoted to each other. And you know you can't square that with the feelings that are inside. And you're so ashamed by having those things that you can't talk about it. You can't share it. You're never going to give it to a Christian brother and sister. And you're afraid to even speak that idea in church. so what do you do? You just run away from it. But running from God is not going to help you. Running from God's people is not going to help you. you got to run to him. This is what the psalmist did. I went into this sanctuary of God. And then I got it. And then I got clarity. And then I understood This is where he sees that God's presence is better than prosperity. God changes his perspective. He's going to do two things. He's going to kind of stretch his perspective. And then he's going to change his perspective. What he's going to show him is, let's look at the full story. Let's look at the full story of the wicked. Let's look at the full story of the ungodly. Let's look at the full story of sinful patterns and behaviors and what that gets us. And then he's going to say, and let's truly see what good is in this life. And that's what he's going to show us. It's the presence of God and not prosperity that is true good. Right? Let's journey with the psalmist in this. Let's jump to verse, let's, let's start again with verse 16. So I tried to understand why the wicked prosper, but it was a difficult task And then I went into your sanctuary, O God, and I finally understood the destiny of the wicked. I learned how the story ends. And look what he describes. This is vivid language. This is language that's right up front. You'd say it's a little aggressive, it's a little hard, but it's scripture. It's God's word to us. Sometimes digesting God's word is difficult. And that's okay. Look at what he says. Truly, you put them on a slippery path. You send them sliding off the cliff to destruction. In an instant, they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. When you arise, O Lord, you laugh at their silly ideas as a person laughs at dreams in the morning. Look what he's describing there. Here's the really scary part. If you look at verse 18 and verse 20, verse 18, truly, you put them. On a slippery path. Verse 20. When you arise, O Lord. Who has become the enemy in the end to the wicked? God has. Do you see that? Is there a more serious foe that we should fear? Than when God sets himself against us? He says, you put them on a slippery path. It's even in verse 19. In an instant, they are destroyed. They are swept away. Who's doing the sweeping away? Who's doing the destroying? God is the implied subject there. It's sandwiched right there between 19 and 20. It's clear what has happened. God has set himself against the wicked. And look at the imagery he uses. I love this. It's so vivid. Verse 20. When you arise, O oh Lord, you laugh at their silly ideas as a person laughs at dreams in the morning. You see the imagery here? He likens the prosperity of the wicked for a season as to a dream. How quickly is your dream world dismissed in a moment? Is anything destroyed more quickly than when you awake from a dream? My son, Paxson, has these incredibly vivid dreams. I mean, his imagination is incredible. It really is. He's such an entertaining kid to talk to, and his brain doesn't stop even when his eyes are closed. I'm surprised his mouth stops when his eyes are closed, to be honest, right? I love that kid, and he loves to share his dreams with us in the morning. He loves it, and he just starts going. I'm like, is this real? like this is incredible. It's just vivid imagery, right? But when I have to wake him up and he doesn't wake up himself, he gets mad at me. He gets mad at me because I've stolen his dream world, Right? And I could see when I wake him up, hey, Paxton, it's time to go. It's time to get up. Right? And he's getting up and he's, you could tell, he's almost grasping at the details. If I could only hold on to them, you know, and then I could tell dad about this crazy dream I had about Ewoks playing volleyball and stuff like, it's crazy stuff, man. And it's always Star Wars, which I'm very, very proud of. um and minecraft okay which i'm not proud of okay but he just vivid imagery right but but think for a moment what is he describing here he said should we really be envious of those who build a world of wealth that is destroyed in a moment in a moment like waking from a dream As quickly as your dream world is dismantled, so quickly it comes, swiftly it comes, that this season of our life in the here and now is gone. Building an empire out of sand, dismissed at the first wave, done. What is he saying here? There is no happy ending for the wicked. There's a chapter of what looks like prosperity, ease, comfort, a painless life, But that is a sliver of their existence. I think all of us would agree. I I don't really care about one chapter of prosperity if there's no happily ever after. That's the best part of the movie the emperor dies. The empire falls. If you haven't seen Star Wars, get updated, okay? I didn't spoil it. That's on you, okay? But right, if there's no happily ever after, I'm not really concerned with this little sliver of a moment, and he realizes, what is he saying? The wicked should not be envied. They should be pitied. This is a sad state of affairs. God stretches his perspective and shows him the prosperity that he envied is is hollow. It's Shallow, it's only for a season, and that season is incredibly small. And because it's small, they should not be envied, they should be pitied. Then he takes a turn here and he shows them what really is good. It's not prosperity, it's the presence of God. Let's continue, let's pick up verse 21. Then I realized that my heart was bitter and I was still, I was all torn up inside. I was so foolish and ignorant. I must have seemed like a senseless animal to you. Yet I still belong to you. You hold my right hand. Let's just stop there for a moment. Probably the most powerful word is verse 23, that first word, yet. Yet I still belong to you. What did he say? God, I was a senseless animal. He says, I was senseless. I was ignorant. I was saying all these thoughts that weren't flattering. I was giving this barrage of thoughts and doubts and ideas against you. And even in that moment, I still belong to you. Embrace that. Feel that. Do you know that? You can't run hard enough or fast enough to get beyond the pale of his embrace. You can't. Even when your thoughts aren't flattering. Even when you say, I'm done, I quit. Even when you get to that moment, it says, yet I still belong to you. Even when I'm throwing a tantrum, right? When I'm clenching my fists and I'm beating against your breast, you can still hold me in an embrace. And I can't break myself free of it. And I can't insult you enough for you to leave me. Isn't that incredible? Yet I belong to you. You hold my right hand. There's the presence of God now. You hold my right hand. You guide me. What does he say? Your presence is right here in the here and now, but also it's in the After. Look at the last part of the verse. You guide me with your counsel, leading me to what? A glorious destiny. I get a happily ever after. I get your presence now, and I get it later. Look at how he continues to describe it. We're in verse 25. Let's jump to verse 26. My heart may fail, and my spirit may grow weak, but God remains the strength of my heart. He is mine for how long? Forever. Not a season. Forever. Forever. Forever starts now and goes forever. And that's what he's saying. This is what I have. And now look at how his perspective has changed. He was so envious of the prosperity of the wicked, so envious of the goods that they had. He wanted their goods. That was good to him. But now his perspective has changed. It's not like the riches and the wealth of of the, the wicked have withered in his eyes. Now he sees them as wrong. No, they're still prospering. Their bank account is still rising up. They saw to invest in Bitcoin a decade ago and it's just skyrocketing for them right now, right? They are making all the wise choices and it's not like that has changed but his perspective has changed he's seen the end how the story ends but then he also realizes God your presence is always with me and that is the good that I want and look at this I wish to get to a moment like this in all of my life at every time of my life but I'm not always there look at what he says those who desert him will perish for you destroy those who abandon you but as for me how good it is to be near god look at verse 25 whom am i in heaven but you i desire you more than anything on earth wow He ends off, verse 28, but as for me, how good it is to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my shelter and I will tell everyone about the wonderful things you do. What is the good? It's the presence of God. I remember being in Louisville, Kentucky in that just dark season when I quit, when I was done. And, and, and I don't know if I just don't have the patience or the strength to put up a false face or whatever it is, but I was done playing games. Like I was done with this devotion to God. I felt like I kept my heart pure in vain. God was not good to me. Yeah, surely he's good to others, but he's not good to Paul Robert Crandall. And I remember being curled up in a ball, crying on my bathroom floor. And this was my prayer, and it's not flattering, It's not flattering. I wouldn't give you as the model prayer for you to pray. But it was honest. It was my heart. And I remember saying to God, if you want me to love you, you got to put that love in my heart. Because there is nothing but anger for you. There's nothing but hatred in here. There's nothing in here that loves you or cares about you. You betrayed me. And in that moment of the most unflattering prayer I've ever prayed in my life, God answered that prayer. He put love in my heart. He was the only one who could pull me out of that pit of despair, He was the only one who could pull me out of that agony. I needed His help. Because there was no place to look but up. And you know what he showed me? He showed me, Paul, I knew her more than you knew her. I loved her more than you loved her. I wept more than you wept. I grieved more that this broken and sinful world had claimed another victim. Victim. Paul, I never left you. I was right beside you on that floor, holding your right hand. I was weeping. With you. See, I knew, I knew the right answers. I'd read this book. I was studying to be pastor. I knew that because of our sin, our rebellion from God, our sin is cosmic pollution. It has broken us and broken this world. And every time we sin, it's not sanitary. The effects go out everywhere. We live in a fallen world that we made fall. And in that fallen world, guess what? People die. People are lost. Sickness happens. And we can't shake our fists at God. We turned away from his plan and his design. No wonder we're not flourishing. No wonder that we're cursed. But he is the one who is right there with us. And this is what I realized. I, I knew that I would experience loss. I just didn't want to be alone. And what God showed me is, Paul, you're not alone. I'm right there with you. Go back to that big idea. Let's put that big idea on the screen. God's presence is better than prosperity you see where is the greatest loss that we can ever experience it's not here it's not your home equity your 401k it's not that it's not your prosperity it's not your health it's not your heart it's not your mind of no, that. No, no. the greatest loss we can experience is right here to be abandoned from God to be banished from the presence of God to not be near him will create a crater so deep in our soul it will never be filled That is the greatest loss, to not be in the presence of God. And what is the greatest gain? What is the greatest good? What is the thing that eclipses all of our prosperity? What is the thing that eclipses all of our pain? His presence in the here and the now. We'll go through any valley as long as you're with me. So maybe today your perspective needs to change. Maybe you're in a season right now where you're like, Paul, there's so much pain. And God is not lifting this pain, and I don't know why. Maybe which you need to see is that he is still there with you. In your pain and in your prosperity, whatever season you're in, he is still there with you. And it is his nearness that is your good. And he will bring you to a happily ever after where that presence will be fully known and realized. So as we get to the point of our service where we take communion, I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing. And as we sing, the table, the elements are going to be set for us. I want you to walk into this experience, maybe asking God, change my perspective. Whatever season you're in, God has made a promise to you. And that promise is that he'll always be with you. And maybe that's what you need to hear. Not that your pain will go away, but that his presence will eclipse that pain. So maybe like me in that moment in Louisville, and maybe like the author of the psalm here, you need that perspective change. God, help me to see the good that's right there. It's not in the goods that I have. It's in your presence and your presence alone. That's what communion is, a promise and a reminder of. Christ shed his blood. He died and rose again for the forgiveness of your sins, the transformation of your life, and to establish and reunite you to God, a presence that will never be broken. No matter how dark the valley gets, that promise will never be broken. Take that to the table today. God, changed my perspective. Now, maybe you're here. You haven't yet followed Jesus. And you're thinking, this is the worst sales pitch ever, right? Let me give you a quote from a man who lost everything in his life, lost his life, and gave it over to the Lord. Look what he says. This is Jim Elliott, a man, great missionary, lost his life. Look what he says here. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You cannot keep your life, your health, your wealth, you can't keep it. If you're willing to lose it to the Lord Jesus Christ, to hand over and surrender your life, you can gain something that you'll never lose. That is the presence of God in your life. What I want you to do, I want you to take communion. I want you to participate in these symbols. But first, I want you to take Christ. I don't want you to participate in symbols you don't yet believe in. That's not fair to you. I want you to take Christ and find God's presence to be the only thing that truly satisfies your soul. So as I pray, call out to him. Confess your sin. Commit your life to him. And then take communion for the first time understanding what these symbols mean. He is with you because of his son's death and resurrection. God is with you because his son died for you. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for who you are to us in Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you'd give us the right alignment, that you'd engage our minds in the right way. Father, that you would help to change our perspective. I pray, Father, in our pain, in our suffering, in our tragedy, in our sorrow, in any of the valley moments that we find ourselves in, and we all get through those seasons, we all get in those moments, the moments where we question, am I doing the right things? I pray in those moments you show up in a powerful way and you tell us I'm with you and my presence is the good, and the only good that you should ever desire. It's the only thing that will truly satisfy. Father, we could go through the darkest of seasons if you're with us. And Father, if we're honest, that's all we want. When, we, when, when life is truly boiled down to the basics, all we want is to not be alone. We want to be with you. And so Father, I pray as we come to this table, that you'd remind us that you've made a promise to us that'll never be broken. A promise that was made in blood. A promise that was sealed At the tomb of our risen Savior, you'll never leave us nor forsake us. Wow. Help us to change our perspective. We don't expect the world around us and the situations of our lives to change, but we need our mind's eye to change. We need our heart to change, to change us. And maybe, Father, there's somebody in the room right now and they haven't made that first step towards Jesus. They haven't made that first step towards you. I pray that they see There is such gain in following Jesus. Sure, it may cost us everything, but take the world, but give me Jesus. We could lose it all, as long as we don't lose you. I pray, Father, that they would step toward you today. They would take that step, participate in communion. They would believe in these elements, in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins and the transformation of our life. Be with us as we sing to you, and be with us as we celebrate the symbols of this table. It's a Christ's name I pray. Amen.